The Redeemer's Tears Wept Over Lost Souls by John Howe Luke nineteen forty one and 42 And when he was come near, he beheld the city, and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. Continued. Yes, perhaps thou mayest say, but this makes my case the worse, not the better, for it gives me at length to understand that what is necessary to my peace and welfare is impossible to me. And so the light of my day doth but serve to let me see myself miserable and undone, and that I have nothing to do to relieve and help myself. I therefore add, Sixth, that by being under the gospel, men have not only light to understand whatever is any way necessary to their peace, but opportunity to obtain that communication of divine power and grace whereby to comply with the terms of it. Whereupon, if this be made good, you have not a pretense left you to say your case is the worse, or that you receive any prejudice by what the gospel reveals of your own impotency to relieve and help yourselves, or determines touching the terms of your peace and salvation, making such things necessary thereto, as are to you impossible, and out of your own present power, unless it be a prejudice to you not to have your pride gratified." and that God hath pitched upon such a method for your salvation, as shall wholly turn to the praise of the glory of his grace, or that you are to be of him in Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31, that whosoever glories might glory in the Lord. Is it for a sinner that hath deserved and is ready to perish, to insist upon being saved with reputation? or to envy the great God upon whose pleasure it wholly depends whether he shall be saved or not saved, the entire glory of saving him? For otherwise, accepting the mere business of glory and reputation, is it not all one to you, whether you have the power in your own hands of changing your hearts, of being the authors to yourselves, of that holy new nature, out of which actual faith and repentance are to spring, or whether you may have it from the God of all grace, flowing to you from its own proper divine fountain. Your case is not sure really the worse. That your salvation from first to last is to be all of grace, and that it is impossible to you to repent and believe, while it is not simply impossible but that he can effectually enable you thereto, unto whom all things are possible. Supposing that he will, of which I shall afterwards speak, nay, and it is more glorious and honorable even to you if you understand yourselves that your case is so stated as it is. The gospel indeed plainly tells you that your repentance must be given you. Christ is exalted to be a prince and a savior, to give repentance and remission of sins. And so must your faith and that frame of spirit, which is the principle of all good works. By grace ye are saved through faith, 
not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Is it more glorious to have nothing in you but what is self-sprung, than to have your souls the seat and receptacle of divine communications, of so excellent things as could have no other than an heavenly original? If it were not absurd and impossible you should be self-begotten, is it not much more glorious to be born of God? As they are said to be that receive Christ. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And now, that by being under the gospel you have the opportunity of getting that grace, which is necessary to your peace and salvation, you may see, if you consider, what the gospel is and was designed for. It is the ministration of the Spirit, that Spirit by which you are to be born again, John 3, 3 and 5 and 6. The work of regeneration consists in the impregnating and making lively and efficacious in you the holy truths contained in the gospel. Of his own good will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And again, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God. So our Savior prays, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. The gospel is, upon this account, called the word of life. Philippians 2.16, as by which the principles of that divine and holy life are implanted in the soul, whereby we live to God, do what his gospel requires, and hath made our duty, and that ends at length in eternal life. But, you will say, shall all then that live under the gospel obtain this grace and holy life? Or if they shall not, or if, so far as can be collected, multitudes do not, or perhaps in some places that enjoy the gospel, very few do, in comparison of them that do not, what am I the better? When perhaps it is far more likely that I shall perish notwithstanding than be saved. In answer to this, it must be acknowledged that all that live under the gospel do not obtain life and saving grace by it, for then there had been no occasion for this lamentation of our blessed Lord over the perishing inhabitants of Jerusalem as having lost their day, and that the things of their peace were now hid from their eyes, and by that instance it appears too possible that even the generality of a people living under the gospel may fall at length into the like forlorn and hopeless condition. But art thou a man that thus objectest, a reasonable, understanding creature? Or dost thou use the reason and understanding of a man in objecting thus? Didst thou expect that when thine own willful transgression had made thee liable to eternal death and wrath, 
peace and life and salvation should be imposed upon thee whether thou wouldst or not, or notwithstanding thy most willful neglect and contempt of them, and all the means of them? Could it enter into thy mind that a reasonable soul should be wrought and framed for that high and blessed end, whereof it is radically capable, as a stock or a stone is, for any use it is designed for, without designing its own end or way to it? Couldst thou think the gospel was to bring thee to faith and repentance, whether thou didst hear it or not? Or ever apply thy mind to consider the meaning of it, and what it did propose and offer to thee? Or when thou mightest so easily understand that the grace of God was necessary to make it effectual to thee, and that it might become his power, or the instrument of his power, to thy salvation? Couldst thou think it concerned thee not to sue and supplicate to him for that grace, when thy life lay upon it, and thy eternal hope? Hast thou lain weltering at the footstool of the throne of grace in thine own tears, as thou hast been formerly weltering in thy sins and impurities, crying for grace to help thee in this time of thy need? And if thou thinkest this was above thee, and without thy compass, hast thou done all that was within thy compass in order to the obtaining of grace at God's hands? But here perhaps thou wilt inquire, Is there anything then to be done by us, whereupon the grace of God may be expected certainly to follow? To which I answer, 1 that it is out of question, nothing can be done by us to deserve it, or for which we may expect it to follow. It were not grace if we had obliged or brought it by our desert under former preventive bonds to us. And, two, what if nothing can be done by us upon which it may be certainly expected to follow? Is a certainty of perishing better than a high probability of being saved? 3. Such as live under the gospel have reason to apprehend it highly probable they may obtain that grace which is necessary to their salvation, if they be not wanting to themselves. For 4. There is generally afforded to such that which is wont to be called common grace. I speak not of any further extent of it. It is enough to our present purpose that it extends so far, as to them that live under the gospel, and have thereby a day allowed them wherein to provide for their peace. Now, though this grace is not yet certainly saving, yet it tends to that which is so. And none have cause to despair, but that being duly improved and complied with, it may end in it. And this is that which requires to be insisted on, and more fully evinced. In order thereto, let it be considered that it is expressly said to such, they are to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, for this reason, that God works, or is working, estin ha energon, in them, that is, is statedly and continually at work, or is always ready to work in them, to will and to do 
of his own good pleasure. The matter fails not on his part. He will work on in order to their salvation if they work in that way of subordinate cooperation with his command and the necessity of their own case oblige them unto. And it is further to be considered that where God had formerly afforded the symbols of his gracious presence, given his oracles, and settled his church, though yet in its non-age, and much more imperfect state, there he, however, communicated those influences of his spirit, that it was to be imputed to themselves if they came short of the saving operations of it. Of such it was said, Thou gavest thy good spirit to instruct them. And to such, Turn ye at my reproof, I will pour out my spirit to you, I will make known my words unto you. Because I called, and you refused, I stretched out my hand, and no man regarded, but ye set it not my counsel, and despised all my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity, etc. We see whence their destruction came, not from God's first restraint of his spirit, but their refusing, despising, and setting at naught his counsels and reproofs. And when it is said they rebelled and vexed his spirit, he therefore turned and fought against them and became their enemy. Isaiah 63.10 It appears that before his spirit was not withheld, but did variously and often make essays and attempts upon them. And when Stephen, immediately before his martyrdom, thus bespeaks the descendants of these Jews, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Acts 7. It is implied the Holy Ghost has been always striving from age to age with that stubborn people. For where there is no counter-striving, there can be no resistance, no more than there can be a war on one side only which also appears to have been the course of God's dealing with the old world before their so general lapse into idolatry and sensual wickedness from that passage, Genesis 6.3, according to the more common reading and sense of those words. Now, whereas the gospel is eminently said to be the ministration of the Spirit, in contradistinction not only to the natural religion of other nations, but the divinely instituted religion of the Jews also, as is largely discoursed, 2 Corinthians 3, and more largely through the epistle to the Galatians, especially chapter 4. And whereas we find that in the Jewish church, the Holy Ghost did generally diffuse its influences and not otherwise withhold them than penally and upon great provocation, how much more may it be concluded that under the gospel, the same blessed Spirit is very generally at work upon the souls of men, till by their resisting, grieving, and quenching of it, they provoke it to retire and withdraw from them. And let the consciences of men living under the gospel testify in the case. Appeal, sinner, to thine own conscience. Hast thou never felt anything of conviction by the word of God? 
Hadst thou never any thought injected of turning to God, of reforming thy life, of making thy peace? Have no desires ever been raised in thee, no fears? Hast thou never had any tastes and relishes of pleasure in the things of God? Whence have these come? What from thyself? Who art not sufficient to think anything as of thyself, that is, not any good or right thought? All must be from that good spirit that hath been striving with thee, and might still have been so, unto a blessed issue for thy soul, if thou hadst not neglected and disobeyed it. And do not go about to excuse thyself by saying that so all others have done too, it is like at one time or other, and if that therefore be the rule and measure, that they that contend against the strivings and motions of God's Spirit must finally be deserted, and given up to perish, who then can be saved? Think not of pleading so for thy neglecting and despising the grace and Spirit of God. It is true that herein the great God shows his sovereignty, when all that enjoy the same advantages for salvation deserve by their slighting them to be forsaken alike. He gives instances and makes examples of just severity, and of the victorious power of grace as seems him good, which there will be further occasion to speak more of hereafter. In the meantime, the present design is not to justify thy condemnation, but procure thy salvation." and therefore to admonish and instruct thee, that, though thou art not sure, because some others that have slighted and despised the grace and spirit of God are notwithstanding conquered and saved thereby, it shall therefore fare as well with thee, yet thou hast reason to be confident it will be well and happy for thee, if now thou despise and slight them not." And whether thou do or do not, it is, however, plain that thy being under the gospel, thou hast had a day wherein to mind the things of thy peace, though it is not told thee, would last always, but the contrary is presently to be told thee. And thou mayest now see, it is not only a day in respect of light, but influence also that thou mightest not only know notionally what belonged thereto, but efficaciously and practically, which you have heard is the knowledge here meant. And the concurrence of such light and influence have made thee a season wherein thou wast to have been at work for thy soul. The day is the proper season for work. When the night comes, working ceases, both because that then light fails, and because drowsiness and sloth are more apt to possess men. And the night will come. For which is the next thing we are to speak to? Number three. This day hath its bounds and limits, so that when it is over, and lost with such, the things of their peace are forever hid from their eyes. And that this day is not infinite and endless, we see in the present instance. Jerusalem had her day, but that day had its period. We see it comes to this at last, 
that now the things of her peace are hid from her eyes. We generally see the same thing in that sinners are so earnestly pressed to make use of the present time. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Psalm 95, quoted and urged, Hebrews 3, 7, and 8. They are admonished to seek the Lord while he may be found, to call upon him while he is nigh. Isaiah 55, 6. It seems some time he will not be found and will be afar off. They are told this is the accepted time, this is the day of salvation. Isaiah 49, verse 8, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 6. This day, with any place or people, supposes a precedent night, when the day spring from on high had not visited their horizon, and all within it sat in darkness and in the region and shadow of death. Yea, and there was a time, we know, a very general darkness, when the gospel day, the day of visitation, had not yet dawned upon the world. Times of ignorance, wherein God, as it were, winked upon the nations of the earth, the beams of his eye did, in a sort, overshoot them, as the word huperidon imports. But when the eyelids of the morning open upon any people, and light shines to them with direct beams, they are now commanded to repent. Acts 17.30 Limited to the present point of time with such peremptoriness, as that noble Roman used toward a proud prince, asking time to deliberate upon the proposal made to him of withdrawing his forces that molested some of the allies of that state, he draws a line about him with the end of his rod, and requires him now, out of hand, before he's stirred out of that circle, to make his choice, whether he would be a friend or enemy to the people of Rome. So are sinners to understand the state of their own case. The God of thy life, sinner, in whose hands thy times are, doth with much higher right limit thee to the present time and expects thy present answer to his just and merciful offers and demands. He circumscribes thy day of grace. It is enclosed on both parts, and hath an evening as well as a morning. As it had a foregoing, so it hath a subsequent night, and the latter, if not more dark, yet usually much more stormy than the former. For God shuts up this day in much displeasure, which hath terrible effects. If it be not expressly told you what the condition of that night is that follows your gospel day, if the watchman being asked, What of the night? do only answer, It cometh as well as the morning came. Black events are signified by that more awful silence. Or it is all one if you call it a day. There is enough to distinguish it from the day of grace. The scriptures call such a calamitous season indifferently either by the name of night or day, but the latter name is used with some or other adjunct to signify that day is not meant in the pleasant or more grateful sense, a day of wrath, an evil day, a day of gloominess and thick darkness, not differing from the most dismal night. 
and to be told the morning of such a day is coming is all one as that the evening is coming of a bright and a serene day. And here, perhaps, reader, thou wilt expect to be told what are the limits of this day of grace? It is indeed much more difficult punctually to assign those limits than to ascertain thee there are such. But it is also less necessary. The wise and merciful God is, in matters of this nature, little-minded to gratify our curiosity. Much less is it to be expected from him that he should make known to us such things, whereof it were better we were ignorant, or the knowledge whereof would be much more a prejudice to us than an advantage. And it were as bold and rash an undertaking, in this case, as it would be vain and insignificant, for any man to take upon him to say, in it, what God hath not said, or given him plain ground for. What I conceive to be plain and useful in this matter, I shall lay down in the following propositions, insisting more largely where the matter requires it, and contenting myself but to mention what is obvious and clear at the first sight. First, that there is a great difference between the ends and limits of the day or season of grace as to particular seasons— and in reference to the collective body of a people inhabiting this or that place. It may be over with such or such a place, so as that they that dwell there shall no longer have the gospel among them, when as yet it may not be over with every particular person belonging to it, who may be providentially cast elsewhere, or may have the ingrafted word in them which they lose not. And again, it may be over with some particular persons in such a place when it is not yet over with that people or place generally considered. Second, as to both, there is a difference betwixt the ending of such a day and intermissions or dark intervals that may be in it. The gospel may be withdrawn from such a people and be restored. And God often, no doubt, as to particular persons, either deprives them of the outward means of grace for a time, by sickness or many other ways, or may for a time forbear moving upon them by his Spirit, and again try them with both. Third, as to particular persons, there may be much difference between such, as, while they lived under the gospel, gained the knowledge of the principal doctrines, or of the sum and substance of Christianity, though without any sanctifying effect or impression upon their hearts, and such as, through their own negligence, lived under it in total ignorance hereof. The day of grace may not be over with the former, though they should never live under the ministry of the gospel more. For it is possible, while they have the seeds and principles of holy truth laid up in their minds, God may graciously administer to them many occasions of recollecting and considering them, wherewith he may so please to cooperate as to enliven them and make them vital and effectual to their final salvation. Whereas, with the other sort, when they no more enjoy the external means, the day of grace is like to be quite over, so as that there may be no more hope in their case than in that of pagans in the darkest parts of the world. 
and perhaps much less, as their guilt hath been much greater by their neglect of so great and important things. It may be better with Tyre and Sidon. Fourth, that yet it is a terrible judgment to the most knowing to lose the external dispensation of the gospel while they have yet no sanctifying impression upon their hearts by it, and they are cast upon a fearful hazard of being lost forever, being left by the departed gospel in an unconverted state. For they need the most urgent inculcations of gospel truths and the most powerful enforcing means to engage them to consider the things which they know. It is the design of the gospel to beget not only light in the mind, but grace in the heart. And if that was not done while they enjoyed such means, it is less likely to be done without them. And if any slighter and more superficial impressions were made upon them thereby, short of true and thorough conversion, how great is the danger that all will vanish when they cease to be pressed and urged and called upon by the public voice of the gospel ministry any more? How naturally decadent is the spirit of man, and apt to sink into deadness, worldliness, and carnality, even under the most lively and quickening means. And even where a saving work hath been wrought, how much more when those means fail and there is no vital principle within, capable of self-excitation and improvement. Oh, that they would consider this, who have got nothing by the gospel all this while but a little cold, spiritless, notional knowledge, and are in a possibility of losing it before they get anything more. Fifth, that as it is certain death ends the day of grace with every unconverted person, so it is very possible it may end with divers before they die, by their total loss of all external means, or by the departure of the blessed Spirit of God from them, so as to return and visit them no more. How the day of grace may end with a person is to be understood by considering what it is that makes up and constitutes such a day. There must be some measure and proportion of time to make up this or any day which is as the substratum and ground forelaid. Then there must be light superadded, otherwise it differs not from night, which may have the same measure of mere time. The gospel revelation, some way or other, must be had as being the light of such a day. And again, there must be some degree of liveliness and vital influence, the more usual concomitant of light. The night doth more dispose men to drowsiness. The same sun that enlightens the world disseminates also an invigorating influence. If the Spirit of the living God do no way animate the gospel revelation and breathe in it, we have no day of grace. It is not only a day of light, but a day of power, wherein souls can be wrought upon, and a people made willing to become the Lord's. Psalm 110 As the Redeemer revealed in the gospel is the light of the world, so he is life to it, too, though neither are planted or do take root everywhere. In him was life, 
and that life was the light of men. That light that rays from him is vital light in itself, and in its tendency and design, though it be disliked and not entertained by the most. Whereas, therefore, these things must concur to make up such a day. If either a man's time, his life on earth expire, or if such light quite fail him, or if all gracious influence be withheld so as to be communicated no more, his day is done, the season of grace is over with him. Now, it is plain that many a one may lose the gospel before his life end, and possible that all gracious influences may be restrained while as yet the external dispensation of the gospel remains. A sinner may have hardened his heart to that degree that God will attempt him no more in any kind with any design of kindness to him, not in that more inward, immediate way at all, that is, by the motions of his spirit, which peculiarly can import nothing but friendly inclination, as whereby men are personally applied unto, so that another cannot be meant, nor by the voice of the gospel, which may either be continued for the sake of others, or they continued under it, but for their heavier doom at length which, though it may seem severe, is not to be thought strange, much less unrighteous. It is not to be thought strange to them that read the Bible, which so often speaks this sense, as when it warns and threatens men with so much terror, as Hebrews 10, 26-29. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins." but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace? And when it tells us, after many overtures made to men in vain, of his having given them up, But my people would not hearken to my voice, and Israel would none of me. So I gave them up unto their own heart's lust, and they walked in their own counsels. And pronounces, Let him that is unjust be unjust still, and let him which is filthy be filthy still and says, In thy filthiness is lewdness, because I have purged thee, and thou hast not purged. Thou shalt not be purged from thy filthiness any more, till I have caused my fury to rest upon thee. Which passages seem to imply a total desertion of them, and retraction of all gracious influence. And when it speaks of letting them be under the gospel, and the ordinary means of salvation, for the most direful purposes as that, this child Jesus was set for the fall as well as for the rising of many in Israel. Luke 2.34 As to which text, the very learned Grotius, glossing upon the words ketai and heistosin, says, Axedo iis qui non nectum eventum, sed et concilium. That he is of their opinion who think, that not the naked event, 
but the counsel or purpose of God is signified by it. The same with tithetai, and alleges several texts where the active of that verb must have the same sense as to appoint or ordain, and mentions diverse other places of the same import with this so understood. And which, therefore, to recite will equally serve our present purpose as that, Romans 9.33, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. And First Peter 2.8, The stone which the builders refused is made a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. With that of our Savior himself, John 9.39, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. And most agreeable to those former places is that of the prophet, Isaiah 28, verse 13. But the word of the Lord was unto them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. And we may add that our Lord hath put us out of doubt that there is such a sin as that which is eminently called the sin against the Holy Ghost. That a man may, in such circumstances and to such a degree, sin against that blessed Spirit, that he will never move or breathe upon them more, but leave them to a hopeless ruin. Though I shall not in this discourse determine or discuss the nature of it, but I doubt not it is somewhat else than final impenitency and infidelity, and that every one that dies, not having sincerely repented and believed, is not guilty of it, though every one that is guilty of it dies impenitent and unbelieving but was guilty of it before. So as it is not the mere want of time that makes him guilty. Whereupon, therefore, that such may outlive their day of grace is out of question. But let not such, as upon the descriptions the gospel gives us of that sin, may be justly confident they have not perhaps committed it, therefore think themselves out of all danger of losing their season of making their peace with God before they die. Many a one may, no doubt, that never committed the unpardonable blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, as he is the witness, by his wonderful works of Christ's being the Messiah, as one may die by neglecting himself that doth not poison himself or cut his own throat. You will say, but if the Spirit retire from men so as never to return, where is the difference? I answer, the difference lies in the specific nature and greater heinousness of that sin, and consequently in the deeper degrees of its punishment. For though the reason of its unpardonableness lies not principally in its greater heinousness, but in its direct repugnancy to the way of obtaining pardon, Yet there is no doubt of its being much more heinous than many other sins for which men perish. And therefore, it is in proportion more severely punished. 
But is it not misery enough to dwell in darkness and woe forever? as everyone that dies unreconciled to God must do, unless the most intense flames and horror of hell be your portion? As his case is sufficiently bad that must die as an ordinary felon, though he is not to be hanged, drawn, and quartered. Nor is there any place or pretense for so profane a thought, as if there were any color of unrighteousness in this course of procedure with such men. Is it unjust severity to let the gospel become deadly to them whose own malignity perverts it against its nature and genuine tendency into a savor of death, as 2 Corinthians 2.16, which it is tois apollum duois, that is, to them, as the mentioned author speaks, who may be truly said to seek their own destruction? or that God should intend their more aggravated condemnation, even from the despised gospel itself, who, when such light has come into the world, hate it, show themselves lucifugae tenebriones, as he also phrases it, speaking further upon that first-mentioned text, such as fly from the light, choose and love to lurk in darkness." He must have very low thoughts of divine favor and acceptance of Christ and grace and glory that can have hard thoughts of God for his vindicating with greatest severity the contempt of such things. What could better become his glorious majesty and excellent greatness than as all things work together for good towards them that love him? So to let all things work for the hurt of them that so irreconcilably hate him, and bear a disaffected and implacable mind towards him. Nor doth the addition of his designing the matter so make it hard, for if it be just to punish such wickedness, is it unjust to intend to punish it? And to intend to punish it according to its desert, when it cannot be thought unjust actually to render to men what they deserve? We are indeed to account the primary intention of continuing the gospel to such a people, among whom these live, is kindness towards others, not this higher revenge upon them. Yet nothing hinders but what this revenge upon them may also be the fit matter of his secondary intention. For should he intend nothing concerning them? Is he to be so unconcerned about his own creatures that are under his government? While things cannot fall out to him unawares, but that he hath this dismal event and prospect before him, he must at least intend to let it be, or not to hinder it. And who can expect he should? For that his gracious influence towards them should at length cease is above all exception. That its ceasing, while they live still under the gospel, they contract deeper guilt and incur heavier punishment follows, of course. And who can say he should not intend to let it follow? For should he take away the gospel from the rest, that these might be less punished? That others might not be saved because they will not? Nor can he be obliged to interpose extraordinarily, and alter for their sakes the course of nature and providence, so as either to hasten them the sooner out of the world, or cast them into any other part of it where the gospel is not, 
lest they should, by living still under it, be obnoxious to the severer punishment. For whither would this lead? He should, by equal reason, have been obliged to prevent men sinning at all, that they might not be liable to any punishment. And so, not to have made the world, or have otherwise framed the methods of his government, and less suitably to a whole community of reasonable creatures, or to have made an end of the world long ago, and have quitted all his great designs in it, lest some should sin on and incur proportionable punishment. Or to have provided extraordinarily that all should do and fare alike, and that it might never have come to pass that it should be less tolerable for Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida than for Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah. But is there unrighteousness with God? Or is he unrighteous in taking vengeance? Or is he therefore unjust, because he will render to everyone according to his works, to them who, by patient continuance and well-doing, seek glory, honor, and immortality, eternal life, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Gentile. Doth righteousness itself make him unrighteous? O sinner, understand how much better it is to avoid the stroke of divine justice than accuse it. God will be found true, and every man a liar, that he may be justified when he speaks, and be clear when he judges. Sixth. Yet are we not to imagine any certain fixed rule, according whereto, except in the case of the unpardonable sin, the divine dispensation is measured in cases of this nature, namely, that when a sinner hath contended just so long, or to such a degree, against his grace and spirit in his gospel, he shall be finally rejected. Or, if but so long, or not to such a degree, he is yet certainly to be further tried or treated with. It is little to be doubted, but he puts forth the power of victorious grace at length upon some more obstinate and obdurate sinners, and that have longer persisted in their rebellions, not having sinned the unpardonable sin, and gives over some sooner as it seems good unto him. Nor doth he herein owe an account to any man of his matters. Here sovereign good pleasure rules and arbitrates that is tied to no certain rule. Neither in these variations is there any show of that blamable prosopolepsia, or accepting of persons, which in his own word he so expressly disclaims. We must distinguish matters of right, even such as are so, by promise only, as well as others, and matters of mere unpromised favor. In matters of right, to be an acceptor of persons is a thing most highly culpable with men, and which can have no place with the holy God. That is, when a human judge hath made his rule before him, according whereto he is to estimate men's rights and judgment, 
there to regard the person of the rich or of the poor to the prejudice of the justice of the cause were an insufferable iniquity, as it were also in a private person to withhold another's right because he hath no kindness for him. So even the great God himself, though of mere grace he first fixed and established the rule, fitly therefore called the covenant, or law of grace, by which he will proceed in pardoning and justifying men, or in condemning and holding them guilty, both here and in the final judgment. Yet having fixed it, he will never recede from it, so as either to acquit an impenitent unbeliever, or condemn a believing penitent. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. None shall be ever able to accuse him of breach of faith or of transgressing his own rules of justice. We find it therefore said in reference to the judgment of the last day, when God shall render to every man according to his works, whether they be Jews or Gentiles, that there is no respect of persons with God. Romans 2, 6-11 Yet, qui promisit penitenti veniam, non promisit picanti penitentiam. He who has promised pardon to the penitent has not promised penitence to the sinner, whereas he hath, by his evangelical law, ascertained pardon to one that sincerely obeys it, but hath not promised grace to enable them to do so. To them that have long continued willfully disobedient and rebellious, this communication of grace is therefore left arbitrary, and to be dispensed as the matter of free and unassured favor as it seems him good. And, indeed, if in matters of arbitrary favor, respect of persons ought to have no place, friendship were quite excluded the world, and would be swallowed up of strict and rigid justice. I ought to take all men for my friends alike, otherwise than as justice should oblige me to be more respectful to men of more merit. Seventh. Wherefore, no man can certainly know, or ought to conclude, concerning himself or others, as long as they live, that the season of grace is quite over with them. As we can conceive no rule God hath set to himself to proceed by, in ordinary cases of this nature, so nor is there any he hath set us to judge by in this case. It were to no purpose, and could be of no use to men to know so much. Therefore it were unreasonable to expect God should have settled and declared any rule by which they might come by the knowledge of it. As the case is, then, namely, there being no such rule, no such thing can be concluded. For who can tell what an arbitrary, sovereign, free agent will do if he declare not his own purpose himself? How should it be known, when the Spirit of God hath been often working upon the soul of a man, that this or that shall be the last act, and that he will never put forth another? And why should God make it known? To the person himself whose case it is, it is manifest it could be no benefit. Nor is it to be thought the holy God will ever so alter the course of his own proceedings, but that it shall finally be seen to all the world that every man's destruction was entirely and to the last of himself. 
If God had made it evident to a man that he were finally rejected, he were obliged to believe it. But shall it ever be said, God hath made anything a man's duty which were inconsistent with his felicity? The having sinned himself into such a condition wherein he is forsaken of God is indeed inconsistent with it. And so the case is to stand, that is, that his perdition be in immediate connection with his sin, not with his duty. As it would be in immediate necessary connection with his duty if he were bound to believe himself finally forsaken and a lost creature. For that belief makes him hopeless and a very devil, justifies his unbelief of the gospel towards himself by removing and shutting up towards him the object of such a faith, and consequently brings the matter to this state that he perishes, not because he doth not believe God reconcilable to man, but because with particular application to himself he ought not so to believe." See more to this purpose in the appendix. And it were most unfit and a very pernicious consequence that such a thing should be generally known concerning others. It were to anticipate the final judgment, to create a hell upon earth, to tempt them whose doom were already known, to do all the mischief in the world which malice and despair can suggest and prompt them unto. It were to mingle devils with men and fill the world with confusion. How should parents know how to behave themselves towards children, a husband towards the wife of his bosom in such a case, if it were known they were no more to counsel, exhort, admonish them, pray with or for them, than if they were devils? And if there were such a rule, how frequent misapplications would the fallible and distempered minds of men make of it? so that they would be apt to fancy themselves warranted to judge severely or uncharitably, and as the truth of the case perhaps is, unjustly concerning others, from which they are so hardly withheld, when they have no such pretense to embolden them to it, but are so strictly forbidden it. And the judgment seat so fenced, as it is, by the most awful interdicts against their usurpation and encroachments. We are therefore to reverence the wisdom of the divine government, that things of this nature are among the arcana of it, some of those secrets which belong not to us. He hath revealed what was fit and necessary for us and our children, and envies to man no useful knowledge. But it may be said, when the Apostle, 1 John 5.16, directs to pray for a brother whom we see sinning a sin that is not unto death, and adds, There is a sin unto death, I do not say he shall pray for it. Is it not implied that it may be known when one sins that sin unto death, not only to himself, but even to others too? I answer, It is implied there may be too probable appearances of it, and much ground to suspect and fear it concerning some in some cases. As when any, against the highest evidence of the truth of the Christian religion, and that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the proper and most sufficiently credible testimony, whereof he hath mentioned in the foregoing verses, under heads to which the whole evidence of the truth of Christianity may be fitly enough reduced, 
do, notwithstanding from that malice which blinds their understanding, persist in infidelity, or apostatize and relapse into it from a former profession. There is great cause of suspicion, lest such have sinned that sin unto death. Whereupon yet it is to be observed, he doth not expressly forbid praying for the persons whose case we may doubt, only he doth not enjoin it, as he doth for others, but only says, I do not say ye shall pray for it. That is, that in his present direction to pray for others he did not intend such, but another sort, for whom they might pray remotely from any such suspicion. Namely, that he meant now such praying as ought to be interchanged between Christian friends that have reason, in the main, to be well persuaded concerning one another. In the meantime, intending no opposition to what is elsewhere enjoined, the praying for all men, 1 Timothy 2.1, without the personal exclusion of any, as also our Lord himself prayed indefinitely for his most malicious enemies, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Though he had formerly said there was such a sin as should never be forgiven, whereof it is highly probable some of them were guilty, yet such he doth not expressly accept, but his prayer being in the indefinite, not in the universal form, it is to be supposed it must mean such as were within the compass and reach of prayer and capable of benefit by it. Nor doth the apostle here direct personally to exclude any, only that indefinitely, and in the general such must be supposed not meant as had sinned the sin unto death, or must be conditionally excluded if they had, without determining who had or had not. To which purpose it is very observable that a more abstract form of expression is used in this latter clause of this verse. For whereas in the former positive part of the direction he enjoins praying for him or them that had not sinned unto death, namely, concerning whom there was no ground for any such imagination or suspicion that they had, in the negative part, concerning such as might have sinned it, he doth not say for him or them, but for it, that is, concerning or in reference to it, as if he had said, the case in general only is to be accepted, and if persons are to be distinguished, since every sin is someone's sin, the sin of some person or other, let God distinguish, but do not you. It is enough for you to accept the sin committed by whomsoever. And though the former part of the verse speaks of a particular person, if a man see his brother sin a sin that is not unto death, which is as determinate to a person as the sight of our eye can be, it doth not follow the latter part must suppose a like particular determination of any person's case that he hath sinned it. I may have great reason to be confident such and such have not, when I can only suspect that such a one hath. And it is a thing much less unlikely to be certain to one's self than another, for they that have sinned unto death are no doubt so blinded and stupefied by it, that they are not more apt or competent to observe themselves and consider their case than others may be. Eighth. 
But though none ought to conclude that their day or season of grace is quite expired, yet they ought deeply to apprehend the danger lest it should expire before their necessary work be done and their peace made. For though it can be of no use to them to know the former, and therefore they have no means appointed them by which to know it, it is of great use to apprehend the latter, and they have sufficient ground for the apprehension. All the cautions and warnings wherewith the Holy Scripture abounds of the kind with those already mentioned have that manifest design. And nothing can be more important or apposite to this purpose than that solemn charge of the great apostle, Philippians 2.12, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, considered together with the subjoined ground of it, verse 13, For it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. How correspondent is the one with the other? Work, for he works. There were no working at all to any purpose or with any hope if he did not work. And work with fear and trembling, for he works of his own good pleasure. As if he had said, it were the greatest folly imaginable to trifle with one that works at so perfect liberty, under no obligation, that may desist when he will, to impose upon so absolutely sovereign and arbitrary an agent that owes you nothing, and from whose former gracious operations, not complied with, you can draw no argument unto any following ones, that because he doth, therefore he will. As there is no certain connection between present time and future, but all time is made up of undepending, not strictly coherent moments, so as no man can be sure, because one now exists, another shall. There is also no more certain connection between the arbitrary acts of a free agent within such time, so that I cannot be sure, because he now darts in light upon me, is now convincing me, now awakening me, therefore he will still do so again and again. Upon this ground, then, what exhortation could be more proper than this? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What could be more awfully monitory and enforcing of it than that he works only of mere good will and pleasure? How should I tremble to think, if I should be negligent or undutiful, he may give out the next moment and let the work fall and me perish? This audio recording was read by Michael Ives. I hope you found it enlightening and edifying. Visit westportexperiment.com for more audio resources and where I write about parish missions, the care of souls, and all things Reformed.